1: While many of our guests are professionals, they aren't your professionals. If you need personalized advice, consult your people. Welcome to another episode of Barnyard Language. Thank you for joining us again here on the podcast. And we'll start, as usual, with Katie telling us what's going on on the farm in Iowa, or with her kids, or with herself, or whatever she wants to talk about this week.
0: Well, Arlene, as I was just saying, I got all my hair cut off yesterday. When I mean, it wasn't that long, but I have really thick hair and a lot of cowlicks, So even a little bit long is too much. And I was saying that I've been going gray from sort of the bottom of my head up. And so with cutting it all off, it's pretty much all gray, which is nice. You know, it's it's cool. It's a privilege to live long enough to go gray. So that is and I'm idea way way too disorganized to start dying it because I'll just end up with that like you know four inches of roots at all times
1: yeah I, I tried for a while and it was it just wouldn't work I would think okay I'll go ahead and book my appointment now for however many weeks the hairdresser says and then I would have to cancel for some reason and then months would go by and it was like yeah I don't think this is gonna work out for me
0: yeah I mean it took me almost six months to even get back in for a haircut so I don't really like my chances of getting back to keep up with dyeing and you know I know folks say well it makes you look younger but I'm like you know at some point your face is 75 no amount of hair dye is going to fix that so you know I mean if if makeup and hair dye and all that is your jam awesome do it sure. but if it's not that's fine too yeah, it's um it's your head, you it's your head. It exactly you're the one who has to look at it other than that i think we're all done with hay for the year thank god we have not a few of our neighbors have started harvest but we haven't things aren't quite dry yet and it's been gorgeous the last couple of days but the temperature just dropped like 20 degrees outside mm-hmm. so i was late because i was closing all the windows and firing the furnace up and finding a sweatshirt because it's it's cold in here um mm-hmm.
1: It's officially fall time.
0: And we have a cow who's been in with the bull, keeping him company because she was already bred and she calved yesterday and apparently chased the bull out overslash through a, a pipe gate because he was looking at her calf. So good mothering. Anyway, he's happier because now he's back out with the cows, which was going to happen like next week anyway. So right. she Bye. just sped up the process. Yeah how are things at your place, Arlene?
1: It has been a busy week on the farm. Technically, I didn't have really anything to do with it. We decided several years ago that we were going to get rid of some of our older equipment and not replace it. So we don't actually do our own silage. We hire a custom operator to do corn silage, and we've never owned our own combine. So we also have a different custom operator come and do combining so this week was the perfect weather week it was dry it was going to be sunny every day there was a bit of frost every morning um and so the silage got done in two days and the soybeans got done in two days and all that's already locked and loaded so the silos are full we filled another bag with some extra silage that didn't fit in the silos And the soybeans have all gone to the elevator and someday we'll get paid for them. So that's pretty exciting to have them off the field and have the potential of of a check coming to us instead of all the money going out. So yeah, a lot of bare fields now, so it looks a lot different around here.
0: Well, and it's always nice to have the potential of money coming in instead of the potential of, you know, a storm taking your crop yes. down or something.
1: Yeah, exactly. I was thinking of our guest last week who had cotton in the fields and waiting for a for a hurricane to hit. So we, yeah, it's definitely nice to have, have things get out of the fields and, and put away where they're supposed to be. And other than that, it feels like not much. The kids are going to school most days. We haven't really had too much sickness. I mean, I should probably knock on wood because I'm sure it's coming and we're getting ready for Canadian Thanksgiving. So this episode will come out on Thanksgiving, Monday. So we've got a couple of family gatherings this weekend. And I'm not hosting any so I just have to make some food to bring but I don't actually have to clean my house. So that's a bonus.
0: And did you say it's your sister's birthday? Or it was? It
1: will be, yeah, yeah, oh. it will be my sister's birthday. On Monday. Did you
0: want to wish her a happy birthday?
1: Happy birthday, Janine.
0: Yeah. Happy birthday, Janine. Anything else, Arlene? Oh, do you guys get a tremendous, horrifying influx of bugs when they take the soybeans out?
1: I haven't noticed it. So wow. there mustn't be, because there's a soybean field right beside our house.
0: We never got it when I lived in central Iowa, but up here we get those, uh, the Asian ladybugs in just I
1: I have noticed horrifying swarms. Couple days. But yeah, yeah, not not horrifying swarms. Just...
0: Oh, no, like thousands, like oh. falling off the ceiling.
1: Ooh. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Oh. Must just be an Iowa thing, or maybe just your neighborhood. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Do we have anything else? I don't think so. And I know that this episode is going to be a longer one, but I'm really excited for you all to listen to it. So we will keep our talking short so that you can hear more from our guest. Here she is. So today we are speaking with Lorraine Vanuick, a registered social worker and counselor here in Ontario. She is a foster mother with expertise in children's mental health and is the co-founder of the National Farmer Mental Health Alliance. So, Lauren, we start each of our interviews with the same question, and this is a way to introduce yourself to our listeners, and we ask what are you growing? So, for our farmers, that can cover crops and livestock, and it can also cover families, businesses, and anything else you'd like to talk about. So, what are you growing?
2: I love that question
1: because I love the intentionality behind it.
2: We are growing a couple of things. So on our farm right now, we have turkeys, chickens, and sheep. So it's breeding season for us, meaning that hopefully in January and February, we will have lots of new little lambs on the ground. From a perspective as a mom and foster mom, I'm growing community members. I I like to pour into my kids and beyond that... Obviously, the National Farmers Mental Health Alliance is getting lots of time and attention because our community has been rocked with farmers who died by suicide. And it has really motivated us to do something in a very proactive movement to ensure that farmers get the help they need, the resources they need, and that we can support the ones who support farmers. So that's the other piece. And then lastly, We also have an on-farm bakery business, and so that has been lots of time and attention and 4 a.m. bread baking moment. So yeah, that's a little bit about my life in a nutshell.
0: Lauren, I loved what you said about making, raising community members, because that is such a an important thing that we're focusing on in our family as well is just you know I mean obviously we have hopes and dreams for who our kids will be but mostly I want them to be decent humans and I want them to not be jackasses. Right. <laughs>
2: <You know? laughs> My goals are good, but <laughs> yeah, like... you know I think sometimes we sometimes as parents we get wrapped up in the achievement piece. Oftentimes when I'm counseling somebody and just getting to know them, I will ask about you know what do they like to do you know kind of who are they. And people will very quickly say the things that they're good at, which is wonderful. And they'll tell me about the things they're passionate about, which is wonderful. And then I ask them this question. I say, tell me about a character trait that you like about yourself. Oh, there's some silence that follows that inevitably. Because we have a hard time recognizing those pieces of ourselves. That's part of our character that that grows our identity and who we are and and what we offer our world and our community. And so I, I spend a lot of time kind of growing that piece with clients because it's just a really critical part of understanding who we are. Yeah. It's interesting
0: to me too, that it seems like we don't talk about it because it's seen as bragging where like, talking about a sports achievement is not bragging, but saying that you're kind or tenacious or curious is, and that's very weird. Anyway,
1: I'm, I'm just going to loop back to the where, where you're growing questions, because we have farmer listeners. So usually we end up asking what what breeds of animals we're talking about, just for the, the curious farmers. So what I kind was of coming back to that, Arlene. OK, Katie wondered about the sheep, too. She's also a sheep farmer. I,
2: I, I actually knew she was a sheep farmer because on one of your other podcasts, she said, you know, you either have healthy sheep or dead sheep you have to be really mindful of it. And I, I, I had this massive chuckle because we have a a friend of ours, his name's George Dickinson. And he would say to me, he would say, now, Loren, you have to understand that when sheep get up in the morning, not that they actually get up in the morning, but when they get up in the morning, their goal is to die. And your (laughs) job, when you wake up in the morning is to make sure they don't die. And then he said, some days you win and some days you lose, you know, because inevitably with our very best efforts, stuff happens. And so, you know, it was, I was just laughing because our lead had spoke so well about with sheep. It just seems like, yeah. But as far as our breeds, we, we, the majority of our breeds are Suffolk. We have some Oxford still in our, in our lineage, but most of it is a Suffolk Dorset cross. And we do that because we also have a wool business. So we have partnered with a wool mill in Frankenmuth, Michigan, and we take our wool to Frankenmuth, Michigan to get cleaned. And then we make wool and wool roving out of it and, and then sell that as well. Very cool.
1: And how I many kids do you currently power. have in your house? Sorry, back to the human side. Sorry. So how many humans do I have in my house right yeah, now? How many humans in your house at the moment? We're, we're kind of a flexible human
2: counting family. Sure. <laughs> But right now there's only four of us because we have three biological children and we have two chosen children. And so the three biological have kind of flown the coop. We have one who's attending the Carleton University in Ottawa. We have another one who's recently got married and has has a little baby. So I'm an OMA. I, I'm a young Oma, so I'm coming into that title. And then our son and his wife live in, in Cambridge, which is about two and a half hours away, so kind of close to Guelph, as you mentioned. And so there's only four of us right now, but yeah, uh, that number through. changes. Yeah. That number changes. Yeah, that's right.
0: So, Loren, now that we're on that topic, how did you get started in doing foster care?
2: You know, fostering is a really It's a personal story for us. So, my husband was actually adopted at the age of six. Now, if anybody who's in this who has some familiarity with the system, they'll go, Ooh, six, because that means he spent the first five years in his family of origin. And his family of origin consisted of a biological mom and many different men who were involved in that relationship. And subsequently, there was some significant some very significant abuse. And so my husband was removed from that home and with his brother and they were placed into foster care for a period of only about six to eight months. I think they came into foster care in February and by August, late August, they were adopted. So I was very, I mean, back in 19, you know, let me see, that would have been 1983 or so. No, no, I'm sorry, 1979. It was a pretty quick turnaround at that time. And so he was adopted into a Dutch immigrant family who weren't able to have their own biological children. And they ended up adopting four children. And so fostering was so close to our hearts because it made such an impact on my husband's life and his development and his need to have to deal with trauma, which is of course an ongoing life journey. It's not like you just deal with it and pack it away and everything's, you know, Skittles and sunshine. So it was very personal. So we actually, when we were first married, I I was a young bride. I got married at the age of uh, 20. I had just turned 20. And so sometime around there, we actually started that process of becoming foster parents in Prince Edward Island where he grew up and where we were living at the time. And then we were blessed with our, our own children. And so it kind of got... Put on the shelf for a little bit, but I, I always tell people it's okay to put some things on the shelf because it doesn't go rotten up there. It's not like fruit, you know, that goes rotten. It's okay to put some of those goals on the shelf, and we can take them back down. We have the time to really embrace them, and so that—that's what happened. Is in 2009, we took it back down off the shelf, and we began our fostering journey with an organization called Nairn Family Homes, which operated out of Park Hill, Ontario, at the time. So that's so- how it
0: that started. Lauren, that's really interesting to me because we did fertility treatments and then started the foster to adopt process here in the States, figuring that we weren't going to have biological children. And then as is apparently really common, uh, common. (laughs) started the classes and promptly had a baby, and then promptly had a second baby. So what advice do you have for folks who are considering opening their home to foster children, whether they have biological children or not, especially because that's something that it sounds like you're on a very similar path to what we've done.
2: Yeah. And I, we have never formally adopted our children who have come to us through foster care many usually because the the children who come to us have some really significant needs. So whether it's a, you know, global developmental delay, meaning that they, you know, fall below the the six percentile, I believe it is, or, or whatever. And then we also have some who have come to us with some really significant health issues. So some have had terminal illnesses, Some have had kind of life debilitating illnesses where, you know, their life progression just looks very different, but all have a unique journey and all have an incredibly valuable journey. And and I think for me, that's one of the poignant parts of being a foster parent is understanding that this journey looks so different for so many people. And yet every one of them has this value. Every one of them has this the story that goes with it that that produces life and and when you share it with other people it encourages people so so I want to say that that first of all fostering is not easy I'm not sure if people sometimes I I come across people who have kind of this romantic idea that I'm going to open my home and these children are just going to love me so much because I've given them this home and I'm kind of like big red blinking signs that say no 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 that that's not what this looks like You have to remember that children who have been, at least in Ontario, have been in the foster care system and then progress. Typically, they have had to function in a period of time in their life in this thing we called survival mode, right? Survival mode means I have to look out for me because nobody else is going to look out for me. So I have to look out for me. So there's this this need. And then the other piece of it, we talk often about this thing called attachment. And I I listen to a lot of Dr. Karen Purvis out of Texas State University. I believe it's Texas State University, but anyway, it's the, you know, child development group down there, Dr. Karen Purvis. And she talks so much about attachment and how critical it is in relationship, along with a number of other, I mean, doctor Ward Newfield. there's all sorts of, of different people that talk about attachment. So if you're coming into this relationship with these Skittles and sunshine glasses on, I want you to know it's time to take those off and really understand what you're committing to, because it is incredibly rewarding. And it is costly. It costs a lot of yourself. Sometimes it costs your expectations, right? But it is incredibly rewarding. I mean, I I still have kids who were part of our family for short periods of time, sometimes six weeks, call me now. And I mean, this is 12 years later. And they will say, you know what? I remember swimming in your pool and just just really enjoying that period of time. And and you have to remember that they're in this period of transition and stress and chronic stress. And so what we see in these kids a lot of times is this post-traumatic stress disorder because they've been under chronic stress for this long period of time. And so this, we see hypervigilance in them, meaning they're always looking for danger. Their brain's always tricking them, saying there's a bear in the room and you're gonna get eaten, so you better run. And so when you when you have that with kids, you really have to understand that our expectations have to be a little bit different. We parent children with trauma differently than we parented children that didn't experience trauma. That that's just the reality of our world. The other piece that is really important if you're thinking about getting into fostering, understand that you cannot do it alone. Like really honestly and truly our family extended family have paid, have played an impactful role in our children's lives. So my parents, my dad passed away this year, but my mom's is still with us and she still comes over regularly to help out. And the, the, our children are well, they feel very safe. They feel very attached now, you know, cause we've gone through a lot of these growing pains together. So a support system is really important. The other piece is you need to at some point sit down and say, what do we need in order to make this really work? I'm not sure. I'll I'll be honest with you. I don't don't know what it's like in in the States, but the compensation for foster parents in Ontario used to be somewhere around $30 a day. And I think I spent $30 a day on gifts from Dollarama or the dollar store, just trying to motivate these kids to, you know, okay, it's time to clean your room. Like, Like, I mean, honestly, if you're looking for any kind of a financial gain, it's a misnomer. You will not find it in the foster care system. <laughs> you do this because you are called to, to really pour in to young, vulnerable people in our society. And so sometimes you need to really step back and say, what do we need to do in order to really make this thrive? Does it mean that you're going to hire a cleaning lady, one or a cleaning gentleman or a cleaning company, you know, once every three or four weeks? <laughs> then then that's got to be kind of part of your plan.
0: It seems like, just like with raising any children, if you're actually coming out ahead financially, you're probably doing it wrong. It's <laughs> right? Like everybody told me how expensive kids were and I was like, there's no way. Oh my God, so much money. Just like, just throwing it, oh, just, hot, just it. burn it. Just burn it and be done with it, you know? Oh. Yeah. Well, and I think- yeah one of the things that's so important to remember is that kids don't end up in foster care because things are going well in their lives you know it's it's never a good thing that puts them into foster care and you know maybe yeah. ending up in foster care is a good thing in the long run but it's never a happy story that gets them to that point you know and that's
2: no and the oh. stories are complicated right? Like, they're not, they're not these straight, easy, like, well, one day I woke up and boom. I'm like, no, like they're convoluted stories. And, you know, oftentimes we try kinship arrangements and we, we dip into foster care and then we're back with our biological families. And, And sometimes that rotation happens. We had one young gentleman who came to live with us for a while and his family had had 13 open and close, you know, openings with the Children's Aid Society in the period of about five years. It was a very complicated situation, understanding that I'm not saying they were right or they were wrong. It was a complicated situation. But can you just imagine 13 times you've got a CAS agent having a file on you? So that means they're coming and visiting and they're putting expectations and it means mom, is, mom or dad is doing something differently and trying to jump through hoops, hopefully. And, you know, we're going to different appointments. Like it, it's it's not this like kumbaya moment. It, there's, a, there's a lot that goes into it. One thing I do want to say, Arlene and Katie, is that I, I often have people say, oh, God bless you for doing this. You know, it's such an, like, like as if it's this really kind of admirable thing. And I, I get that, I appreciate that. But then they say this, I could never do it because I could never give them back. And to be, can I just be honest to say that breaks my heart when I hear that, because what I hear people actually saying is that love will cost me too much. So it's not worth loving at all. Maybe maybe I'm being naive. I don't know, but I think, wow, really for that child, that period of time of love, yes, it will cost you. I, I get that but you make an impactful difference on this young person's life. So it will cost you, but the payoff for that child is immeasurable. And, and then I would say, is it worth it? And inevitably, and I would say, yes. Oh, hands down. It's worth it. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we got a call last week about this young child who, who needed a home. Now we couldn't meet her needs. So, so we said, no, I'm sorry. We, we just cannot meet. They were very significant metal medical needs. Like, Twenty-four hour nursing medical needs kind of thing, you know that type of a a a need. So even though we couldn't meet it, I I think it will cost you. But that cost is worth it. It it absolutely is worth it.
1: And I mean, really, if we look at, I was just gonna say, if we look at all of our relationships, I mean, there there's ultimately there's potential cost in in every relationship we have, right? I mean, our our kids are gonna grow up, people are people in our lives are going to die you know like you, you can't get away from not not loving people and not not investing in relationships because there's going to be loss yeah. because this is just the cost of living right and and that really it almost i mean not that everyone has to do it but it it comes across as a kind of an excuse right like I couldn't do. It. I mean, it's okay to say I couldn't do it because it would be too hard. But but the the letting them go piece, I think, is is part of part of what we all live with in in all aspects yeah. of life. And it is hard. Oh, it for is sure. Hard to, to say, you
2: know, they're going back to violence, But you know what? That part of that story might have been a changing point for that parent, and and those relationships are healed and you know, so, so it is hard, but you're right. Every relationship costs us. And so love, love does cost. I've heard people say before, you know, love is a verb. It's an action word and boy, is it ever right? Like if you think about, if we think about our our relationships in life, it, it does cost us
0: just as you said, absolutely. So Lauren, how old were your biological children when you started fostering?
2: Well, our youngest would have been seven, and our oldest would have been 11. Yeah, it would have been 11 at that time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people say that you shouldn't start fostering, like you should always just foster children younger than your youngest. And we, we didn't adhere to that. We, we, a part of our organization, they're very focused on attachment and we call it matching. So if a child, you know, file comes across the desk and they read the different needs and, you know, what's recorded. So depending on what that child is experiencing from a behavioral perspective or from an academic perspective, they will fit the child to the family to the best of the ability. So for instance, I homeschooled our children for a period of time, even though my my husband is a public educator, but we homeschooled our children for a period of time. So when a, a child who presented with the need that they needed some specialized academic attention, it was a really good match for us, right? Because we were already really engaged. So some of those children were older than our oldest, Some of them were in between and some of them were younger than our youngest. And so we 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 based our we we based it more on this matching perspective rather than ticking of a box. So we were fortunate that way. It doesn't always happen that way, which is one of the reasons why we were really glad that we went with a different organization, a more private kind of organization.
0: How did your biological children feel about having to share you with these new kids or what was that process like to explain to them? where these other kids were coming from and what that, you know, what that looks like for them.
2: You know, I think we were a little bit naive, <laughs> which in this case was maybe good because what ended up happening was our, our biological children kind of banded together. It was like, okay, we're going to, we're going to, they, they, be, they kind of teamed up with with the child or children, you know, in the end. It wasn't difficult for my children to share me. But remember, we had a very different life experience because I was homeschooling them. So I was home. And so there wasn't, I don't think it was as difficult to share them, to share my attention. And also remember, because we're going through a matching process, a lot of those kids kind of fit in with the family in a way that it didn't feel. Now, I won't say that happened every time. I remember one young fellow we had, and I would pay my children you know, $5 for 15 minutes for them to go out and entertain this child who had more energy than you could imagine. I mean, if you think about a stallion horse that just is going and going and going, I'm saying stallion horse and not Tasmanian devil for a reason, right? Like this child just required so much energy. And I, I think by 12 o'clock, I was so wore out. I was like, who wants $5? And, you know, just go outside and like throw a football or run or, you know, cause, cause he just required so much energy and, and that is due to trauma. Like that's, that's part of that, that traumatic experience that he just needed that constant stimulus. And I think looking back, I know a lot more now than I did then, but if you asked any of my children and a lot of my children are really good really good and articulate children so they speak about foster care from a, from their perspective of being a sibling foster you know provider they will say it was one of the best experiences of their life because it shaped them all of my kids have this unwavering compassion for people and it it actually i'm one of those parents i stand back i'm like wow how did that happen right like i don't know how that happened but i have a son who works with special needs adults And he called us the other night because it was one of those situations where you were loving on somebody and it was a messy situation kind of thing, right? Like, and I have another son who just can connect. He actually was diagnosed with autism at the age of two and a half, which boggles my mind because he can connect with anybody, right? He can connect with young kids and he can connect with older adults because he's just able to do that. And my biological daughter is able to connect with hurting, like she can perceive when something's not right, based on, I think, because we were a foster family, she learned some of those signs that things were kind of off. And so she'll tell the story of in high school, she was walking by a girl, and she just really felt like, oh, there's there's something going on. And so she sat down with this girl. And this girl was in a mental health crisis and think contemplating suicide. And so she was able to kind of say, you know what, we, we need to tell somebody, let's go and talk to this safe person. So it, was a, it was a teacher that you know my daughter knew would be a safe person kind of thing so she she went and got the help that was needed so so all of my kids would say even though it was hard because they sacrificed a lot like sometimes they were sharing toys and they were sharing family experiences so some of our one of our foster children had almost the same birthday as our son and so of course we had some shared birthdays i mean there was times where we didn't do that but there was times where we did share based on how busy we were at that season of our life so there was a lot of, there was a high cost to them as well, but hands down, every one of them, in fact, each of them have talked about becoming foster or adoptive parents at some point in their life.
1: Wow. That's a, a that's a clear sign that, you know, that obviously it was more positive than the- Rewarding. Yeah. 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 How do you feel living on a farm or in the country, raising animals, those types of things? How did that both help your experience both as a parent and a foster parent and what what parts of that made it more challenging
2: well i think the more challenging part is safety limitations because when you're on a farm we've got large equipment we've got access to a great big pond (laughs) you know And we have animals who don't always like attention. And so part of our, part of what we do now is we do respite, meaning some foster kids will come on the weekend. And so they don't always know, or weekends or weeks or, you know, a couple of weeks at a time, they don't always know the limitations. And so it requires a lot of supervision. It requires a lot of safety kind of things in place. Like we do lock gates and we do lock barn doors and things like that for, for partly for that reason. But on the flip side of it, what has it offered? You know, part of what we teach with at the National Farmers Mental Health Alliance, and I know we're going to get into that, we teach about animal assisted therapy. And I can't tell you the level of effectiveness it is for kids who have experienced trauma to be able to nurture an animal. In fact, because what we know is that some of, some of the kids that we have the privilege of raising or, or being a family for them when they need one is they haven't received the nurture that they needed. And so they have a hard time receiving nurture from an adult. They just don't trust adults to provide what they need. They've had to, they've had to kind of fill their own needs. But when you team up that child with an animal, like a little young lamb that needs to be bottle fed, And that child nurtures and pours into, and I mean, feeds, feeds an animal, even though they didn't get fed and cares for, sometimes we have lambs and and Arlene, you'll know this, they get born with their hooves kind of turned under. And so we have to put a stilt on their hooves and we wrap it to make sure that they develop the muscle structure so they have, you know, solid foundation to build upon. And so our foster kids have helped, you know, can you hold, can you hold the lamb while I You know, nurture when I where I care for it. So it's been incredibly impactful. In fact, in my own private practice, there are times where if I'm working with the child who's experienced a lot of trauma, it's very threatening for them. No matter how low I kind of put my chair and make sure that the power differential is minimized. So I'm not using language that is, you know, adult language and I'm I'm trying to be as warm and welcoming as I can be. They're scared. Because anytime that they've had any interaction with adults, it has resulted in scary situations, but I can take that child out to, it's called a creep pen, which is where only lambs can go because there's certain gates that, you know, prevent big lamb, big use from going in. So only lambs can go. There's a heat lamp in there. So it's warm and there's always fresh straw and fresh hay and, you know, kibble that's really high in protein. So really healthy for the lambs. It's, it's, a, it's a growing environment is what it is. And there have been times where myself and my client have gone and sat, sat down with the lambs and allowed those lambs to kind of crawl over my client. And suddenly as they're caring for and, you know, petting these lambs, they can talk about some really hard things in their lives. So it has been invaluable experience. I, I, I think I can't help but say what we offer from a rural perspective for kids from kids from hard places is really a healing it's it's part of their healing journey and i'm i'm thankful for that really very thankful for that so
1: we we did say we're going to get to the national farmer mental health alliance so let's go there now can you tell us a little bit about it and how it was founded and what what the alliance does what's what's your mission and what are what are you working on
2: Sure. So the National Farmers Mental Health Alliance, we are actually a pretty young organization. It formed earlier this year when a couple of like-minded therapists said, we've got something unique to offer. So in my private practice, I've been working with farmers for, I don't know, at least 10 years. And that's been my uh, adoption and and farmers are really nearly 100% of my clientele. And so I've been working with farmers for a number of years. And one of the consistent themes is that when they've tried to access service, number one, we're very, as farmers, we're very reluctant to access services at all. Mm Because due to stigma, due to numerous barriers, there's so many barriers for farmers to access services, which are slowly being broken down, which I'm thrilled for. But, you know, I'd have a farmer who would come to me and say things like, You know, I lost my fifth generation farm. And when I told my therapist, she said, well, you know, it's not that big a deal. Just save up some money and buy a new farm. Right? Like what? That's crazy. They clearly don't understand what it means to lose a legacy. And the farmer would say, you know, the thing that bothers me the most is I don't have a farm to pass on to my children. You know, like they could handle their own sense of failure for losing the farm, but to not have something to pass on to the next generation because that's that legacy piece. It's part of our, our identity as farmers. I had another young woman who who came and she said, "Well, I went and spoke to it was like a, a, a guidance counselor, of sorts. I'll kind of leave it at that." And she, the guidance counselor, couldn't understand why this young woman was so upset. But what what the situation was is she and her dad had you know they had done 4-H through all the years they had. Been selective in their breeding and their stock that they brought in, with the sole goal of her taking over this farm. And then she got to her grade 12 year and said, I really want to become a veterinarian. Now the guidance counselor was like, that's fantastic. You're not gonna be a farmer, you're gonna be a veterinarian, you know? And so the counselor was dismissive and was like, Your dad'll be fine with it. He'll understand. Well, you and I know that that's not the case. I mean, this is years of breeding in mind and succession planning. We've had these 18 years of succession planning in place and suddenly that's changing. And so part of what we do at the National Farmers Mental Health is we wanna help clinicians, help therapists understand the issues that farmers face, the barriers that we face when we're accessing help and, and really make sure that therapists have an understanding of how to build an effective therapeutic relationship with farmers because because we're a different breed like we're fixers by nature if we see a problem we want the answer we want to fix it right away, right? And we don't like to ask for help when it comes to mental health but we'll ask for help if we're our sprayers broken or our combines broken right i'll call john johnny next door and he can help me out but if i'm experiencing a mental health issue i don't tell anybody I definitely don't tell my doctor and I definitely don't tell my spouse. I will kind of hint to my feed guy or my fertilizer guy or my seed gal or my veterinarian, but I rarely reach out to my spouse, like to really say I I need support or to my doctor. That doesn't happen. Everything's peaches, peaches and cream when it comes to them. So, so we formed earlier this year, kind of officially, even though we've all been working in the industry for a number of years and so that's one piece of it is training therapists. The other piece is to, is to really respond to the need as farmers call call us. And, and one of the big things that we're doing is we're partnering with other organizations. So like Milk Movement and the Christian Farmers Federation of Ontario to provide webinars and literacy pieces so they can reach farmers directly through their kind of avenue. And, and they, they've got good research information and, and skills to do so. I think sometimes we've got all sorts of people who have great ideas because that was impactful in their life. That doesn't mean that it's really helpful in everybody's life. And so we really want to make sure that people are getting good information and good strategies and that sort of thing.
0: I think too, one of the things that folks miss when you're talking about, you know, farmers or anybody in rural areas is just the lack of privacy and the absolute lack of resources. The, you know, our yeah. nearest therapist is 25 miles away and it's still a small town. And, yeah. you know, I personally don't really care, but I know a lot of folks who would not want to be seen coming and going from the therapist office. And, you know, if you go to a small town pharmacy, you know that pharmacist and they know what meds you're on and they That's probably right. have a pretty good idea why you're on those meds. And it's, yeah, you know, yeah. maybe you don't want everybody to know everything about you.
2: Well, and I mean there's oh. benefits to having a small community, but you're right. It's yeah. also everybody knows everybody else's business. Interesting enough, in the US, 70% of US counties don't have a single child or adolescent psychiatrist. In Canada, in urban populations, okay, there's one psychologist for every roughly 3,000 people. But in urban populations, it's one for every 9,000 plus people. So it's a huge whole difference between accessibility. And so it is a major barrier for sure. So what kind what of responses
1: re- have you gotten from therapists themselves when you talk about the issues that farmers face? I mean, it, it seems obvious to us, but you know, I guess what's obvious yeah. nice to us is, is clearly, you know, not, not that way for other people. So I'm just curious about what kind of, what kind of reactions you've gotten from, from clinicians.
2: Lots of, Oh, wow. This is so helpful. Lots and lots because therapists want to do well. Like I don't know a therapist who wants to screw up somebody else's life.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Otherwise
2: they're in the wrong 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 profession. profession. But we sometimes out of our, our desire to do well, we don't recognize what the expertise that's brought to the table. And so one of the things I encourage therapists to do is recognize the expertise before you. Sometimes therapists think, oh, well, farmers are uneducated. A lot of, a lot of times therapists think, oh, you know, it's all Skittles and sunshine for them because they, they just work twice a year where they plant and they harvest and that's it. And so like, it's not a, it's not intentional. It's just a lack of understanding. And so when you bring that understanding, like for instance, I was telling somebody this morning, well, even our pork prices are, are can be controlled by the Chicago market. And so they just don't, they're like, wow, really? Like we don't have, a, people don't have a good understanding of all of these issues, like weather, you know, it might be a beautiful sunny summer for some people, but it's been a completely dry drought season for farmers and our beans are this hot, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so the, generally the, the response is a great deal of respect for farmers, which we need. It's one of what's one of the pieces that farmers are really feeling an impact from is that there's a, a discon there's a, a disjointedness between the consumer and the producer. And so we need to help join that up and, and that's one of the things that we do.
0: I feel like one of the things that gets missed a lot too is that you know other jobs you don't like your coworkers, you get a different job, you know, or you don't like your in-laws, you don't live next door to them. You know, you don't like your house, you just Move to a different house. And a lot of these things are not possible for farmers, or, you know, that coworker we don't like is a sibling or an in law, or some days our spouse. And, you know, that we can't just leave, or like Mm -hmm. for us, my husband's the fourth generation in this house. We're not going to just move to town because I don't like living in the country, which I do love living in the country. But for example, you know, and just When I moved on to this farm, I had no idea how much, honestly, grieving there would be about the fact that we're never going to buy a house together. I mean, we're never going to pick out a house. We're never going to go house shopping. This is it. And then someday we'll move to the other house on the farm and hopefully one of our kids will take over this house, you know, and that's it. And so it doesn't even have to be big, dramatic stuff that you're dealing with, but there's just a lot that folks don't understand if they haven't been there or we haven't told them about it because i'm assuming that in counseling school or psychiatry school or whatever there's not like a class about how to deal with farmers you know and it's it's not fair to expect people to understand something that we haven't educated them about
2: so There, there isn't a class yet. That's part of what we're doing. There should be. Absolutely. There needs to be. There absolutely needs to be. And, and, and I think I I hope that's going to change. I really do hope that's going to change. I mean, part of what we've developed is this thing called agriculturally informed therapy, which is 12 plus hours. So it's basically there's a course wrapped up in it, and we are working slowly on a book manual that that goes with it. So, so I agree with you because. I love what you said there. You don't realize the grieving process. I've worked with so many, the majority of my clients in this case are women who have married farmers and move on to the farm. And they come into this marriage relationship with a set of expectations on them. They had no idea existed, right? They, they really had no idea. Oh, wait, now I'm, my job is to make field meals and drive out field meals.
0: Yeah, and just how much that changes and honestly how much there should be relationship counseling for farm families too, because I mean, you know, if I Google marriage counseling or whatever, and it's like, go on a date night every week, like, well, cool. There's, there's no babysitters. And if there are, I'm dropping an extra 70 bucks to pay the babysitter. And you know, we haven't been on a date night in six months at best, you know, and, I work with my husband and I work with my extended family and his family and our children and our work is literally in our front yard and often literally in our house, you know, during lambing, there's usually lambs in my bathtub or in the kitchen and, you know, there's no distance and I wouldn't have it any other way, but it would be a lot more helpful to me to deal with professionals who understood that this is normal in our lives, even if it isn't normal for most people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The, the advice to leave work at work when you can walk out your door and see a cow that's gotten through a fence or, you know, when, when you see the things outside your window that need to get done is, is a little bit harder to do than if you're even if you're working from home and can at least shut the laptop or (laughs) walk away from the office.
0: But, you know, there's no leaving it at work, you know, or just dealing with the text messages that get sent when those fucking cows are out again, you know, and dealing with the anger and frustration without it becoming a a permanent part of your family,
2: Mm you know? You know, it's always interesting to me, though, because that is one of the juxtapositions or the the dichotomy of farming, where we work in this world of isolation because we're, we're quite isolated. You know, we don't have different, you talked about, you know, you know, working with your family. I mean, how many times did I go into work and I'm surrounded by 40 different people? I can kind of choose who I have lunch with, right? I can build relationships with people that, okay, we have a bit of a shared but it's different in farming. And so we're, we're isolated in one sense and yet we're overly connected in another sense, right? And the other sense is we're constantly on call 24 seven. And it, and it always, I had one client who came and the therapist had said to them, look, you have a choice. You either go on vacation or you sell the farm. That's your choice. (laughs) What? Like that, that's just crazy. A lot of farmers can't, like they, they literally feel like they can't go on vacation or sometimes they don't want to go on vacation as well. It looks different. Self-care just looks different for farmers. But we, we have this dichotomy of isolation and we're in small communities where everybody knows our stuff and we're in families where everybody knows our stuff. And, and there's these different expectations and we have these generational pieces, which always boggles my mind when I work with a lot of farmers that have experienced. So trauma actually changes our DNA for four to five generations, but 72% of Adults have experienced trauma, so we've all impacted by it. But after World War II, we had a huge influx of farmers into our nations that fled Europe. But they lived in survival mode for four to five years. And, and yet we, we expect that relationships are going to flow just kumbaya, and they don't. And so now we have succession planning where you have somebody who is, I mean, some farms... By the time you're getting to the succession plan, they're they're huge corporations built from a life of that was born out of survival mechanisms, right? And we're expecting them to hand over the reins and and sing sing until the day is done. And that's just not possible. So we we do have this huge dichotomy in farming, between the isolation and yet the interconnectedness is like so prevalent. so.
0: The one that gets me is how often I hear, well, we never went to therapy. We dealt with X, Y, and Z, and we never went to therapy. And I'm like, well, maybe if you had, we wouldn't be spending 30 years in therapy. At this point, I'm doing therapy so that my kids don't have to, or they can at least go to therapy for their own shit, not for the shit that's now four generations old, that they're still dealing with the repercussions of, like, you know, where people talk about, well, my... You know, my dad came back from the war and he was fine. And, you know, yeah, he drank until he blacked out every night and he hit us, but that was fine. That's just the way it was. I'm like, that's not actually okay. You know, that's no. not, no. this is not acceptable.
2: Yeah. Um, and, and that that's another thing too, within agriculture, there's this socially acceptable, you know, drinking and alcohol use that goes on, but it has become a real unhelpful coping strategy that we don't want to talk about. And so, you know, we really, within our agriculture community, we have to kind of start taking off some of those blinders and saying, okay, wait a minute, what's going on underneath this surface where everything looks fine? Because as I mentioned before, and if you ever talk with Diane Bergsma, she she shares, shares her story beautifully, but she'll talk about her son who died by suicide. And on the outside, it looks so peachy keen. She said, now I can look back and I see these different dots that are connected. But at the time, uh, and, and what I see all the time in farmers is, is they're under this chronic stress where they're functioning. They look like they're doing really well, but then they get to this point and it's a quick flip and there's hopelessness and helplessness and like, I just can't do it. And an interesting statistic recently is 25% of farmers have thought of taking their own life or have felt really like it's not worth it giving up. So it's a form of suicidal ideation. I mean, there's different degrees of suicidal ideation in the past year. 25% that's one in four farmers. And so and 68% of farmers this is from 2016 a study that was done in Canada and 68% of farmers are under this chronic stress they feel they feel this chronic stress and I'm like that's telling if we don't change something what is that number going to be like in 10 years because that chronic stress continues to build and that's that leads to hopelessness and helplessness and all of those pieces. So the the statistics are glaring, and and equally so. And uh, you know, it, it, there's not like a, this border between our two countries that says, "Oh, everything's great over here." And like, no, no, like we are all in this stuff together.
0: Don't ruin that for us, because Americans. I think a lot of us have the secret hope that if shit gets bad enough, we can move to Canada. So <laughs> just don't ruin it for me.
2: <laughs> I have family members. I have family members in the states that were like. So, like, do you have an extra room? Like, we could, if we claim asylum, can we just, (laughs) right? Well, you'll have to be put to work on the farm.
0: (laughs) We're already doing that here. Hell, you know. All right. So, one of the reasons we were excited to have you on the show is to talk about mental health in kids. So, how do you know that your kid needs mental health support? And how do you, what are some resources for finding that?
2: Mm -hmm. Well, (laughs) things sometimes, gone. <laughs> sometimes we say what's wrong with you to a kid like well there's nothing wrong with a child but there's a lot of stuff going on let's get to the why behind it yeah so so what you said is is bang on is that sometimes we get we get lost in that performance piece and and like well you should be able to do this we, we put that expectation on kids which actually increases worry I talk all the time about helpful guilt, unhelpful guilt, and shame. I'm probably talking too much today, but I'm loving this conversation. So no, for do it. You can cut and paste later. But you know
1: that we that... can turn it into two episodes if we have to. Okay, good People part
0: one, part two. Turn it off and come back later if it's too long. Whatever. <laughs> yeah.
2: We talk about shame, you know, which is that inherently sense of I'm deeply flawed. I just no matter what I do, I'll never measure up. That is often, kids feel that as early as 15 months of age, right? That is often birthed in very young experiences of being deeply flawed. It's a huge, like, yes, sometimes we steal from somebody and we feel shame. That's different. That's an emotion of shame. I'm talking about this this innate feeling of being deeply flawed. And then we talk about unhelpful guilt. Well, unhelpful guilt looks like kids. I don't know if you've ever run across them. I run across them all the time. A, typically they have anxiety. B, they care deeply about what other people think of them. They, they kind of fall into that people pleasing. We've got that sense of unhelpful guilt. Well, oftentimes kids feel this set of unrealistic expectations that we as adults place on them. And we are good parents. I'm not saying that we're not good parents, but we sometimes put expectations on our kids. We don't realize it at the time, but they're unrealistic. I, I tell the story often, my daughter, she, she'd go to school and this one teacher who my daughter just loved, and this teacher like really loved her. She was like, oh, my daughter was one of those you know, 99% kids. Things just clicked in her brain really naturally. She, I don't know that she got that from me. I, I don't know where it came from. My husband's pretty brilliant, but anyway- So the teacher would say things to her like, oh, Emily, don't worry about this test. You'll get a hundred percent on it. And then my daughter would get back a mark of 97%, which you and I would go, holy, right? That's not what my daughter did. She said instead, oh, I failed. I didn't reach my teacher's expectation of getting a hundred percent. And so she'd go to her teacher and be like, oh, I only got 97. I'm sorry. I really studied. And the teacher trying to, and this is a good teacher. She's a fabulous teacher, but she would trying to console my daughter would say, well, don't worry about it. Next time you'll get a hundred percent. Oh, she actually re inferred and reset that expectation of being perfect. Right. And so before you know it, From that births anxiety, because if we have worry that we're not going to get hundred percent, it motivates us to do really well. We study, we do well, we get rewarded. And before you know it, we've grown that worry bully is how I call it with kids, right? It's a bit of a worry bully. And so that's that unhelpful guilt piece. And then helpful guilt is, of course, I did something wrong. I screwed up. I want to take responsibility for it. Unhelpful guilt is what I see all the time in kids, all the time. It's it's those kids who say, Oh, I'm so sorry I didn't, you know, bring you a glass of water. Like, well, nobody asked you to get a glass of water. You don't innately have to get me a glass of water or whatever. Like they're apologizing for get forgetting somebody's name. They're apologizing for, you know, something not being quite a hundred percent whatever it is. Well, that's actually one of those signs that makes me go, ooh, ooh, ooh. Tell me about anxiety. Tell me about is it something that kind of goes through your family? And inevitably. Usually a parent will say, Oh, well, I have dealt with worry with anxiety. And so we, we see it kind of that, it, that pattern sometimes.
1: Mm-hmm. So I already talked a little bit about, you know, a lack of, of mental health, mental health care for children. But if we're talking, and I mean, obviously the, the barriers for rural kids exist in the same way they do for us as r- rural adults. But what what options are out there and what works best for especially, say, like the under 10s? I mean, does mm-hmm. does talk therapy work or, or what types of resources are, are best for our for our younger kids? Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to know that rural kids,
2: I don't know if I said this earlier, but they're four to six times more likely to die by suicide than urban kids. And so that is one of those telling statistics that we've actually kind of missed the mark in our in our rural areas due to various barriers, due to various lack of supports. And so it's really important that we are providing within our school systems and within our communities, I don't know if somebody belongs to a faith community or they belong to a 4-H community, we need to be providing them with the education and the skills to teach kids because they're not getting it. They're not getting it through some of the other urban formats that they would receive it. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what works best? Younger kids. One of the things I want to say that what works good for one child might not work at all for another child. So it's really for important sure. that you figure out what works well for your child and what works well for you is also really important. Some of the things that I work with, with, so with, with my rural population, which is, like I said, you know, hundred percent of, of my kids, for young kids, I do a lot of puppetry, sand tray therapy, so anything where it's kinesthetic, where we're, we're working through things, I have like a Playmobil, which is a farm set up. And so sometimes when kids, especially, you know, younger kids, we're talking about, you know, seven and younger or, or eight, and nine, those kids, they can play with that farm and they can talk about things that are bothering them. They can talk about, you know, I used to be called sheep shit when I was in elementary school and, and in high school. And I think probably I probably went to school with a bit of stuff on my boots at some point. I, I don't, you know, I, it's entirely possible. I know I did for work one day because I could smell it myself, but you know, our 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 rural kids, sometimes that teasing, sometimes those pieces, we feel almost guilty for being farmers, right? We feel like, oh, there's a problem because we are farmers. And so 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 I have a lot of rural toys that kids can play with and we can talk while they're playing so so which is really effective for kids we they learn through play and so if they're learning through play it's important that they learn mental health through play as well now in light of that sometimes we do things called behavioral redos where you know what you're in this situation and this child said this to you and it was really hurtful let's let's find figure out a different way to handle this situation rather than punching child x in the nose what else could we do? Right? And so we do behavioral redos. That works fantastic too, for parents to learn instead of being like, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Wait a minute. Whoa. I think I'm hearing some tone there. How about we try that again? And we just teach the interesting things. It takes, there's this thing called neuroplasticity. We'll probably talk about it a little bit later. It just means our brain can learn and change. It's not locked into place by the time we're five years old. That's misnomer. Mm-hmm. Right? So our kids can still learn and change. And yes, so can we. So as parents, we can learn to do things differently, to encourage our kids to do things differently. So for our younger kids, I'm a, I'm a big play therapy fan because talk therapy can sometimes be really inundated. I don't know if you've seen, if you've ever been to church, anybody who's listening, but if you expect a five-year-old to sit through that 20 minute sermon with their back up straight and their hands folded, you're, I, you must drug them. I don't know how you do it. (laughs) I've never been one of those parents that could ever, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. kids need interaction and so if you really want to get something let's make it interactive for our older kids we do a lot of we still do play but sometimes we play games like and, and especially to help with communication right so i play some different games and before they take a turn we identify a feeling that we had yesterday at school and what do we do with that and how did we you know we, we flush it that out okay now it's your turn to to hit the ice out of the brick or whatever. And so we still engage, but we, so we incorporate, we kind of mesh the two between play therapy and talk therapy. One of the, the key ingredients, I, I've gotta be honest with you. And I think I touch on this with every one of my clients is that they are inherently valued. I work with a lot of, and we're gonna get to teens here and I, I can't help but, but talk about this because it happens all the time. I will have a teen who comes into my office who is super uber smart, who is the captain of every rugby and soccer group team that there is, who is a volunteer in their community and everybody regards them as basically having all their stuff together. Right. And they will sit and cry in my therapy room, say, I just don't have any, I just, I'm so sad. And I will say to them, do you know that you have value Besides all these wonderful things. I mean, if you couldn't do anything, you still have value. There's a purpose for your life. You're not actually an accident in anybody's gamut of reality. You, there's purpose and you have value. And folks, we've kind of lost that somewhere along the way. Kids have not come to that understanding any longer that they have value, that they're a valuable part of our community and that we, that they have intrinsic purpose and so that's one of the focuses of therapy is to come to that understanding because if you have value and you have purpose then there's reasons for you to look at things differently there's reasons for you to change there's reasons for you to love yourself knowing that you are lovable knowing that you are loved and so that is one of the the pieces of therapy particularly when working with teens
1: wow yeah I'm Okay. Can you talk a bit more about, about teens and how we can support them in their sure. journeys? I love how you said
2: journeys because life is, life's a journey and it's not always an easy journey. In fact, I think sometimes it gets a little bit harder with every turn of the sun. I, I, I don't know what that is. I don't know what causes that. But in Canada, we have something called the kids' help phone. And the numbers of people accessing the kids' help phone has consistently increased over the years. I, I also want you to know that so long as we have relationship, we have influence. So when you think about those teens and you think, oh, they're teenagers, we're not supposed to get along. I want you, I want you to know that's a lie. That is, that is not truth at all. So long as you have relationship, I'm not saying it's a perfect relationship. I'm not saying it doesn't come with a whole lot of bumps in that road. if, If it's anything like the rural roads of Canada, like good golly, Miss Molly, there's a whole lot of rural bumps in those roads. But so long as you have a relationship, you have influence. In fact, as a parent, you have an incredible level of influence. So use that relationship, build that relationship, focus on that relationship. I have, I have teens who come in all the time and parents are like, oh my goodness, you know, they're just blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay, well tell me about your relationship. Well, it's non-existent. Well, then parents, you have some work to do because if you think that coming to therapy is going to fix your teen without you fixing relationship, we're living in in a different world that's not the reality that we live in. It's really critical that we focus on relationship. But for kids, we've got, you know, we talk about telehealth. So I'm not sure, you know, I know that in the U.S., we, in our rural areas, there's a severe lack of services. And I'm not trying to overemphasize. I'm not trying to minimize. I'm just saying there is a severe lack in services. So we need to put some people in charges of some things to get more services out there. Now telehealth is a fantastic thing that happens in Ontario because we have so few child and youth psychiatrists. We have this thing called telehealth where your family doctor can line it up and basically you spend 2 hours on a for lack of a better word a Zoom call. It's not actually through Zoom. It's, you know, through the the medical licensed kind of organization, but in that psychiatrist in that 2 hours after submitting documentation sometimes from parents and from teachers or from other life life impacted impactful people, grandparents or guardians, that type of thing, you may receive a diagnosis and you may receive a recommendation for medication, for instance, back to your family doctor. So I think that's really good. I think it's really critical. I think it fills a gap. However, it's not completely filled because it's not an ongoing relationship. And and sometimes our kids from hard places or our kids with some really severe needs they need a longer term relationship. In fact, in Ontario, we have a huge, we have 25,000, actually 28,000 children waiting for mental health services in the province of Ontario alone, 28,000 kids waiting for services. I work with a number of families through foster and adoption who have children with reactive attachment disorder. And they have some really complex mental health needs. You know, I've got young, young children trying to commit suicide, young, when I'm talking young, I'm talking like, wow, how do they even know that? You know. And so our residential services, there's a a tremendous gap between needs that some families are presenting. Remember, a lot of families will try their best and, and they will exacerbate all of their own resources before they start reaching for outside help. So number one, families reach out for help sooner. Start this train sooner. If you don't need those services later on, that's okay. You can say, you know what? Things are going swell. We don't need those services any longer. So start that train chugging sooner reach out for help sooner. In Ontario, we have these lead mental health and those often have what we call walk-in clinics, meaning you don't have to make an appointment. You literally can walk in and say, Hey, I think my child is, is struggling with worry. They're seven or eight years old or nine years old. And, you know, I've noticed, okay, well, let's, let's tackle that. Let, let's have that conversation. Let's learn some strategies earlier. And so that, that is one of the, the great things, but we do have a huge weight for residential services does pouring more money into the system help? Maybe, probably. Will it fix it? No. We've really got to spend some time strengthening strengthening our communities. And I say communities because, as I said, children do not grow up in a vacuum. We have families and we have extended families and we have communities. And we've got to find ways to start these conversations earlier To communicate to our kids that they are precious, that they are beautiful, they're wonderful, and that they have value. And we've got to equip people to deal with these life-altering situations and build resilience mechanisms in. An interesting report said that farmers' resilience levels are actually lower than the general population. I I have a hard time believing that, to be honest. I don't, I mean, I want to believe it. I'm not trying to criticize the, the researchers. Farmers are fixers by nature. We're inherently resilient because we face things like drought and flooding and virus in our barns. I know, I know, Katie, you, you talked about your sheep and cattle farmer. I remember one year we lost 75% of our lamb production to a virus that went through our barn. We had no control over and I have never cried so many mornings in my life as I went out there and I held those lambs as they were dying, completely helpless to change the outcome.
0: We and had a yeah, year like that once too. And did it, you yeah it was Near you. eight years ago now and it's still yeah you can feel it right there because there's but i wonder if the lack of resilience isn't the just one more fucking thing because yeah, one more fucking thing you know? well, I, and I whatever that thing is might be fine if that was yeah. the only thing but you've still got all these other things and then there's one more fucking thing
2: one more. And it's sometimes it is just that one more thing. The other thing is we have a hard time transferring our skills and resilience in farming to resilience in our emotional and relationship pieces, right? So it is just one more thing. And I, I can't do it anymore. And I, I give up. And I, I get that. The other piece is you have so many strengths in so many areas, but we've, we've got to transfer them. And that transfer looks complicated to some people. So they don't bother trying. there, They don't bother doing it because they don't know how to do it. So that's, that's the other piece. I
0: will say for some perspective in the States, we're seeing a lot of therapy via telehealth. Like I see my therapist through telehealth, she's 20 miles away, but it cuts an hour out of my visit to not have to drive there. I've been seeing her for two and a half years now, you know, fairly regularly. And it's been great. And like, I was able to talk to a child psychiatrist the other day through a benefit that my company offers she's almost three hours away but mm-hmm. you know my company will pay for eight visits with her which is mm-hmm. incredible and is Amazing. Uh, three hours away was the closest one so there's you know thankfully my kids are not at a point where I would ever drive there to see her at least you know right now but it's incredible to have that resource just in my computer and you that
2: know, is one thing that the the pandemic has Brought about good change. Yeah. Really, honestly, and truly, we are used to conversing over a computer now. And that has been incredible. So it used to be we had kids who had anxiety that couldn't get out of their home. Like they just, the, the anxiety was too high to even get out of their home to come to therapy. Well, therapists don't generally go to the home. And so what has happened is this has opened up an opportunity to begin to work on some of those anxiety things or those other, you know, we're really depressed, those things, without having to leave our home. And we see growth, we see change, we see positive things come out of it. So absolutely, this has been a good thing. And it does make it increasingly accessible. In Ontario, we have something called the Farmer Wellness Initiative where farmers get free counseling, they can make a phone call and get free counseling. And and so I I do see some positive changes. I I see the stigmas actually decreasing We have more and more young farmers that are accessing that help or rural people. When I say farmers, I have to mean rural people. Yeah. So so you're absolutely right. But I I can't help, but I heard you say there, I I wouldn't normally drive that three hours if my kid, you know, because they don't really need it right now. And what has happened, and that's part of the barriers that rural people face is because it used to be that if I have to drive three hours, I put off doing that, you know, in the hopes that things get a little bit better, that things get better. And when they don't, by the time rural kids are accessing support, it's, it's become like, for instance, and when I say anxiety, it's because lots of kids experience anxiety. It's like 70% of the of the. The kids that we see, it's related to anxiety and can be very, very severe, very significant anxiety. But when we see those early signs and indications, because there's barriers to accessing services for a lot of rural people, we don't. And by the time we do, child is 13 or 14 and unable to leave the home and going to school is like a foo-foo dream, right? So that that is consistent with what we see in, in our more rural areas.
0: So can we talk a little bit about medication for children? You know, it's gotten more acceptable for adults to medicate, but there still seems to be a real, you know, you're drugging your kids, so you don't have to deal with them, or it's going to mess their brain up permanently or whatever. And as an adult who's medicated, it seems ridiculous to me that, you know, we wouldn't tell a diabetic child that we're not going to give them insulin because they need to learn how to do it themselves. You know, I mean, it's, we wouldn't do that. And it's bizarre to me that we wouldn't, to me personally, <laughs> that we wouldn't medicate kids who need it. But I'm wondering how we can approach that with folks who are more hesitant or family members or yeah, whoever else.
2: You know, I, I love how you worded that. Because, and, and I, I want to be cautious. I, I'm not a pharmacist. I'm not a doctor. So I can't speak specifically to medications and what works, what doesn't work, all of that stuff, right? It is certainly, I hope, born out of a relationship with a professional that understands those mechanisms. And you will find across the gamut, there'll be some psychiatrists who are like, I will not medicate a child under 12 years of age. And you will find some, sorry, psychiatrists, and you will find some psychiatrists who look at you know, a a certain situation and says, this five-year-old needs medication. Otherwise we're facing a family breakdown where this, this child will have to live into some sort of a residential because, you know, like they absolutely need some medication. So understanding that it's not this, like, let's tie this a little box up and put a bow on it. There's such unique circumstances. You need a team, to be involved to really understand all those pieces and, and one of the things i encourage is understanding that medication alone can be effective it can be but rarely is it as in fact if ever is it as effective as counseling and medication and folks i've yet to hear and work i work with a lot of psychiatrists a lot of psychologists a lot of you know doctorates in sociology who are doing you know whatever And I've yet to hear one who would say, I don't recommend counseling and medication because really the two need to go hand in hand. When we talk about anxiety and people are really reluctant to take anxiety medication, we have to understand that for some anxiety medication, it takes up to six to eight weeks to
1: really see the full effect of how it could change things. Mm -hmm. I I wonder if sometimes parents or guardians have concerns about medicating kids in terms of, I mean, you talked about, you know, it takes time for the medication to work because typically, you know, we give our kids, you know, say an antibiotic for a week and then hopefully they're better, right? Where we're making the, it feels like a bigger commitment to, to decide that, yes, this is something that we're going to try. But I think we also have to remember that it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have to be forever because you know, some of these medications may work for a few months or a few years, and then maybe they get older and you decide to wean them off and, and see what life is like for them. And they can, and as kids get older, then they can start to make those decisions themselves. And in partnership with their doctor or therapist or, the you know, the other people in their lives, then we start to give them some ownership over that. But as parents, I think there are times where you, you know, like you said, with the right team in place, can make those decisions with and for your kids to to give them that helping hand for now. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, even if it's something that they look back on, you know, in their adulthood, they can be like, oh, that that worked for me then. And I'm going through a hard time now. And maybe this is something I can I'd try and I know that it's it's not scary and I can talk to people about it and it's going to be OK. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. I, I understand a parent's reluctance, right? Like I do, because we don't always know exactly how these mechanisms work. You know, do, does, it, does it play a role later on in brain development? That's what I mean. We don't necessarily have all those answers. But what we do know is helping a child thrive in their childhood makes for a more successful adult. That, that is just the reality. And so if it means that your child can thrive with the assistance of some medication, and learn coping skills and learn other ways and, and become more confident, that's a good thing. And so when we have parents who are just like, Oh no, I don't want to do medication. I'm always kind of like, okay, well, wait a minute. What, what is presenting? What's really the story here going on because is, is medication part of that journey? And it, and sometimes I have parents who say, well, you know what, I'll do it if I have to, but I want to try therapy first. That's okay. You know, like that's okay too. So long as we understand that part of the story might be using medication and in consultation with your community, your doctor and all those support networks that that's not, we, we, we don't shun that simply because certainly just as, as Katie said, like if you had a broken leg, would we not give you some Tylenol and some painkiller or maybe some morphine? Like, I, I don't know what it's going to look like for you. I know if I break my leg I want morphine. I don't want a tunnel. <laughs> right? A good stuff. And so it depends on what the needs are, it depends on that child, it depends on what all the whole family brings to the table. If you have a family who's gone through crisis and, and you've got a child with some really significant needs, maybe they've gone through their own trauma or attachment piece. like there's our stories are complicated. We, we there's no like well here's the rule number 1. If you meet this threshold, then therefore this. No, no, no. We have complicated stories. So let's not just be opposed to medication. Let's be willing to learn about it. Let's be willing to, you know, con- to talk about it. Let's consult with other people. Let's understand why they work and what they're for and all of those pieces of the puzzle.
0: I think one of the most telling parts for me as well was, you know, dealing with postpartum depression and anxiety while pregnant with my second child, you know, that it just sort of started with the first one and then continued you know i'm being very resistant to medicating while pregnant because what if it melts my kid's brain or you know god knows whatever you know and my doctor said it's a lot worse for your baby to deal with the mother who's that stressed out than it is for them to be exposed to medication and it sounds horrible but if your kid kills themselves it's not going to matter if the medication might have changed their brain development a little or if they end up with some you know horrible addiction or whatever. There are much worse things than what might theoretically happen as a side effect of medication. And I mean, no, if my kids need medication, I won't be excited to do it. That's not the point, but there's a lot worse things. So
2: You know, I, I always, I'm kind of fascinated by research because what we know is that if a mother is going through a lot of stress, chronic stress, that impacts her hormonal development and it impacts the the child It impacts. So, so to think that, you know, well, so long as I don't take medication, my baby will be healthier than if I'm living in this chronic period of stress and anxiety and no, you know, like what you're going through can impact. Now that's not, I want to be clear though. That's not a fault thing for mothers. I think our society needs to do a, a way better job supporting women, period. Can I just kind of go out on a limb there?
1: Yeah. You know, I
2: hear, <laughs> all, I hear all sorts of people and I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. Can, have you come alongside those moms who are juggling career and who are juggling young children and who are juggling debt and who are juggling farm realities and spouses that are suffering from their own stress. One of the things that we know is that farmer spouses are very rarely accessing support services for their own mental health, unless if their spouse does. And farmer wives are eight times more likely to think about suicide than men. Now, men are four times more likely to die by suicide, but women are much more likely to think about it and one of the reasons for that is because they are their spouse's sole support sole support right that isolation piece comes into play all of those pieces come into play and so you've got women who are juggling all of these responsibilities and their spouse's well-being mental well-being now that probably goes across the board and flips through roles and that sort of thing i understand that but for the for the general context of the conversation it means that we have got to learn to come alongside our rural, our rural members.
1: And I think, and I when think we talked about children's mental health specifically. There is that line of wanting to ask for help and wanting to talk about it, but also wanting to respect your kid's privacy, and that that becomes tricky, right? Where you you want to be able to to talk to someone and and look for resources and feel like you can connect with other people but but admitting to someone else that your kid is struggling and saying that out loud and knowing that you're you know i'm putting quote marks on this telling telling on your kid or mm-hmm. or sharing something of theirs that you're not sure if they're if they're comfortable with other people knowing so then that becomes a a different line right it's one thing to talk about your your own struggles but then to admit to others or to talk to others about your kids, it's easier to say, oh, they did great, you know, like they, they, they won the, they won the show at the fair, they, you know, like they, they got a an 100% of their test. But to tell somebody else that your kid is really having a hard time, that's a different conversation and, and that becomes trickier territory.
2: It does. It does, because particularly sometimes when we can, we confide in someone else, at that moment in time, it's really big for us, right? So, oh my goodness, my daughter's really going through a hard time and I share with somebody. Well, then about three or four days later, that issue is no longer a problem for myself or for my daughter, but the person who I've confided in is still like, oh, you know, (laughs) so, so one of the, one of the aspects we can be, I'm not sure if you ever heard the term being your brother's keeper or your sister's keeper, it means we choose to think the best and we believe the best. And when somebody confides in us, it's a treasure. And I counted a huge privilege as a therapist, people confide some really painful things with me. And, and I choose to think to myself, wow, that is such a privilege that you would choose to share some of your deepest, hardest things with me. And because it's a privilege, I'm gonna hold it with some fragile hands. I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep it protected. And I'm going to hold it with that. It's fragile. It's, it's very precious. And if we can be that for one another, that changes some of that dichotomy of can I trust you? Unfortunately, we, in in our world, sometimes we don't realize what that privilege is for someone to confide in us. But if we can live that out, it becomes a lot easier to share those things with the other piece is recognizing that's how we decrease some stigma around it. If I can share with you, Arlene, that my daughter's struggling and you can share while well, my kid's also struggling or whatever, you know, whoever that is. That's how we decrease stigma. So we hold that story to be precious and we recognize we're not alone in this. And as parents, I mean, I don't think, aside from losing a child, I don't think there's anything more difficult for us than seeing our children suffer and feeling helpless to change it. My, my brother and sister-in-law, they, their son died when he was four, four and a half years old. He died of invasive group A strep pneumonia, which is basically the flesh eating disease that landed in your lungs. And I can't tell you how painful it was to have to watch them go through that journey. We go through our own journey, but to watch somebody go through that journey is, wow, a really hard and difficult and painful experience. But that journey, those hard pieces of our journey are stories that are more common than what we think they are. And so when we give room and we give space to try and to share those journeys with one another, that's, that's where we
1: build community. That's where we build that relationship piece. Yeah. And that's why we started a podcast, right, Katie? It is Um, (laughs) because
0: it's, it's easy for it to look easy to other people. And it's easy to think, well, it's okay to blame it on genetics for this person, but My excellent parenting should have overcome that, you know, or, you know, it's okay for this person to use that excuse or this or the other, but it's, it's hard to give ourselves the same grace that we give other people. And it's, I think it's really important. You know, I've, it still shocks me when people say, well, you're just such a calm mom to me, which is, it's not my personality. It really does freak me out when people say that. And they're giving me credit for this. Like, it's medication and therapy. I mean, it has been a lot of hard work on my part, but it is largely medication and therapy. Like, it's not that I'm magically just super zen. You know, anyone who knows me would never believe that. But to just be very open about the things we're struggling with because it helps other people to do it themselves
1: and face that We've obviously done the work too though yeah because those things no and it's alone it's with, been yeah, a lot of hard the, work yeah but
0: it's been assisted by a lot of other things and a lot of other people and it is not that i am somehow just a better zenner person than the rest of <laughs> you yeah thanks to the therapy and the medication
1: So we're going to go down, go on to a lighter note now, Loren, this is our, usually our closing question before we get into our cussing and discussing segment. I'm stealing it from Katie. So we ask all of our guests, if you were going to dominate a category at the county fair, what would it be? And categories can be real or that you can make them up to ensure that you dominate. Mm.
2: Well, in our area, we have what's called the Brigden Fair. And it has a long story in, in my family because my, my uncle was the vet in the local area and my grandfather was, you know, I forget what the name is, but basically the chairman of the fair board or something to that effect, the grand marshal, I think it was called. Anyway, so I, I love the Brigden Fair, love the Brigden Fair. And it happens on Thanksgiving weekend, which is coming up. So if you're in anywhere close to Brigden, you should come to the fair. So um,
1: October, Katie, not November. Oh, yes. Yeah, sorry. My <laughs> bad.
2: Yeah, maybe Thanksgiving. The other Thanksgiving. <laughs> yes, yeah, our Thanksgiving. So I, I, make, I do make a pretty mean salsa. It's called Wonderful Salsa if you want to look it up online. But oh, it's really good.
1: But it's wonderful.
2: As I think about that, it would have to be the loudest, most off key singer category in the county because nice. I would win that title hands down.
1: In Thanks fact, when I stand off key.
2: Yeah. Loud and off key. I remember in grade one, we were singing at the music festival and my teacher who I adored, she was such a good grade one teacher. I just, honestly, she was a safe place for me. And uh, we were singing at the county fair. So she came up to me. She said, now remember Loren, today's the day that you sing quietly. <laughs> and I was like, oh she's like coaching me personally she really she really likes my scene yeah I've been putting in a lot of practice
1: <laughs> she was telling me to shut up because I couldn't sing on that's what she, was really... she didn't tell you the mouth the words so I mean <laughs> she totally silence you really quietly
2: in fact when I was like 15 I, I I have to be honest I was one of those gals who like I just wanted to get married and have children I was really like oh You know, and I do love being married. I've been married for 25 years and I do love being a mom, but I also love that, you know, I'm in, I'm a PhD student. I have this private practice. I have all these other things. I love that I can grow myself in many different ways, which is awesome as a woman that we have that opportunity. But on my list of the like things that I needed to see in a really good husband, really close to the top with some musical ability. And he's a music teacher because I was really afraid for our children. If there was no musical genetic passing on the torch, it was not going to come from me at all. But thankfully he took over that role. So like my kids play guitar and drums and they sing and they play cello and, and I'm kind of like, that worked, right? Like I, that worked. That box that I ticked on my list, it worked. <laughs>
1: 20 year old, you got that figured out. So now we'll go ahead and move into our cussing and discussing segment. We've registered for an online platform called SpeakPipe, where you can leave your cussing and discussing entries for us, and we can play them on the show. So go to speakpipe.com backslash barnyard language and leave us a voice memo, or you can always send us an email at barnyardlanguage at gmail.com, and we can read it out for you. So Katie, what are you cussing and discussing this week?
0: Okay, so this is kind of a two-parter because one, there's a lot of pressure on women to just tell people off when they offend us, which I am generally 100% behind. But for many of us who live in places where we're dealing with folks we're going to have to see again, who may have long-term relationships with us or our spouse or whoever, you know, this don't always just want to go ahead and tell them what you think because you'll offend them, especially if they're older folks, they might not be on the same page about not talking about Personal things about other people so the bigger part of this is talking about other people's bodies don't do it just don't i have decided to teach my children that if it's likely to be something that the other person already knows you don't talk about it so if they have lettuce in their teeth or they've tucked their skirt into their underwear coming out of the bathroom whatever then tell them because that is something they probably don't know but if you want to talk about a disability, their weight, their weight loss, whether they're pregnant, how pregnant they are, are they going to get pregnant, whatever else, just shut your mouth. They already know about it. You don't need to discuss it with them. Just don't do it. Just don't. It is not your business. They already know about it.
1: Yay. So that's that. Well said. So
2: I feel like that's an intelligence moment that has just blessed our presence because all too often when we're interacting with other women, remember how I just talked about coming alongside with the community and yet we, we divide ourselves so quickly, you know, like, and things that I might struggle with would be evident to other people and what they struggle with isn't evident and yet we don't go digging and pointing those things out like let's just cherish one another let's recognize the value that we all bring to the table oh that was brilliant I love that Katie
0: I think too I mean you can justify you look great today I love your outfit under things people might not know because maybe they don't know that they look great or they look happy or they look healthy or they're on fire whatever yeah yeah but anything that they already know, you don't need to mention. It's
2: easy. And choose so, to look for those things, right? Yeah. Like, let's, let's choose to look for those things that we can point out that brings value and that validates people.
0: Yeah, it is super awkward to have people mentioning your body shape or size or whatever else. I give it two thumbs I, down.
2: I have heard that before. A woman came up to another woman. She's like, oh, you're a pear
1: shape the fuck what? <laughs> did she have a stem on the top of her head like an actual <laughs> pair because that's I'm, the only way you're allowed to say that
2: i am like i was flabbergasted i could not believe the conversation and of course the person who heard that was like Ex- excuse me like what what are we talking pears? like i i don't that was really really now thankfully the person kind of tried to back up what they were saying because they suddenly realized that they had just ultimately goofed major but the damage was done and the hurt was there Mm -hmm. and the ignorance i just was rather shocked by it that that we would be so ignorant as to try and put certain people in certain categories based on how they look really is that what we do i
0: will say that if a small child says something like this like the uh, having two babies in short succession did not do my stomach any good. And so I do still look several months pregnant because I have a number of hernias and a diastasis. And it's just, it's a hot mess, whatever. So this little boy walks up to me in the co-op a couple months ago and goes, oh, look, mommy, this lady's going to have a baby too. And his mother looks like she's just going to melt into the floor. And like, he's little, he was like four. He had a new baby sister. He was so excited.
1: Yeah, he's just trying to make sense of the world.
0: He's just a little duder. But if you're more than four feet tall, maybe four and a half feet, because my kids are tall, just shut it. Just, yeah. you know, I will not be horrified by your kid who is just really excited about more babies in the world. But I've had adults say the same thing to me. And those people just need to shut it. because. So
2: my, anyway. my sister-in-law, who's a flight attendant, so she like, she has lots of world experience. Right. And she was like, If I could give the world any advice, even if the woman is on the way into the hospital to have the baby, never ask them how far along they are. Just, just drop that from your entire, you know?
1: Yeah. Unless you are the doctor or nurse in the office and it's your job to ask the question.
2: We don't know. We don't know. Yeah. And I, I recently I've, I've worked with a couple of couples who have, unfortunately their children have been born sleeping. Like they, they have had stillborn babies. And I remember when I, I had a miscarriage, really late miscarriage, it was like an 18, eight, the, our, the, our baby was 18 weeks. So I was 18 weeks along when we had, so it was very, quite a late miscarriage, you know? And I remember having this one person come up to me and say, oh my goodness, you look so fabulous. And then I said, well, actually we've miscarried the baby. And of course they wanted to melt in a puddle. That was okay. That was, you know, that's innocent. We had shared that we were pregnant. We hadn't really shared that we had lost the child. Yet. And so we were, you know, that that was okay. But other than other than those innocent circumstances, just try to leave out that whole term. How far along are you? <laughs> just drop it. Just yeah. drop it.
0: Also, yeah. I'm going to add, well, as long as it's healthy to that, uh, because, mm-hmm. oh, well, your baby is lacking. It's already ruined. Uh, you know, maybe next time you'll get luckier
1: and have a better one. And that one comes across as, you know, it's coming from a good place. You get what people are trying to say, but the, yeah, as long as it's healthy, yeah, then both seems like it's tempting fate and telling you that if this child is not healthy, that they're, they're less than right. That, that one is, that one's rough.
0: Anyway, Lauren, what do you have to cuss and discuss?
2: Yours was good. Yours was really good. I've Um,
0: had a couple weeks to work on it though. So,
2: So, yeah, well, I've got a couple. One of them is how often I hear people say, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. And then they start talking about their own experience. And I'm like, why can't we, we need to live in a world where we're just willing to listen and validate other people's experiences and just give value to it. But then last night I had a terrible sleep and I thought, I'm just going to say that there is not enough good quality pillows out there because honestly, Like, why can we not have a good night's sleep? I don't, I've tried the foam ones. I've got lots of feather ones. And I know there's a really good one in the basement, but by the time I get like ready to crawl into bed, I don't want to go all the way down the basement to grab one. So that was my other kind of piece. But originally it was on, you know, like we really can't do this life thing alone. So let's validate people's experience and, and come into a form of agreement with them. And, and champion them and walk alongside rather than so often I have people say, Oh, I know exactly what they're going through. And I'm like, yeah, no, no, you don't actually, we don't walk that same road. Oh, if they could walk a mile in my shoes. No, no, it's your own journey. And I want to, I want to ch- come alongside your journey, but it's still your journey. Nobody else can walk that, uh, but you.
1: Mm-hmm. And you can be, you can be empathetic and supportive without completely understanding that's okay. too. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. don't, you don't have to completely get it. Yeah. And it doesn't have to become about you, right? I
2: think yeah. so often people we we want to be empathetic so much that we start talking about our own experience. And I and I'm just like, let's not do that. Let's I mean, there are there is a time to share our story, something like this podcast, where you've shared your story is impactful. It's fantastic. But sometimes uh, what I typically see more often is people are so dismissive, Right. So somebody shares something really hard with you and we're uncomfortable with that hard thing. So we just dismiss it. And we kind of try and type a bow on it and pack it away. Or we try and sweep it under a rug because we're just so uncomfortable with that. And let's be willing to be uncomfortable with people because they're going through hard things. And so we can sit in that place of being uncomfortable with one another. It's not a bad thing. Mm
0: -hmm. All right, Marlene, what do you have today?
1: Well, I'm just going back to the, this damn fly (laughs) It's (laughs) landing on my face, my microphone on the camera, and it's just a symptom of all the other flies that are in my house because, you know, farmhouses. And then it's also that, you know, that special time of year when it's not just flies, but then they bite, but. You know, at least a mosquito will land long enough and you can kill it, but like flies, somehow like bite and keep moving. I don't know how, how they do it, but they can, they can hurt you before you even have a chance to swat them. So I'm just going to say Barnhouse flies. They suck. I hear here. here. I (laughs) It's not deep, but I mean, it's relevant. Arlene, let me show you the most
0: American thing in the world there I guess
1: uh, okay what are you showing it us is, it's an it audio is called, medium
0: yes it looks kind of like a, a super soaker like a water gun it is called the bug a salt rifle and it is <laughs> okay. indeed a gun for killing flies
1: so it, it shoots like granules Table of salt.
0: salt oh it does if you hit a horse fly to close enough distance they do actually just vaporize <laughs> Um, wow. It's easily the most American thing I've ever encountered, and I love it so much.
1: Wow. I'm to may uh, have to invest. I believe in their that. website
0: is bugasalt.com. The best part <laughs> is that it, it comes <laughs> They're with They're going to become sights. a sponsor next week. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> they actually sell laser sights for them and oh a, my spe- gosh, uh, a specialized gun rack. So <laughs> yeah. I got my father in law one for his birthday, and he is also very excited.
2: That I'm buying one. I, I, yeah. I just wrote down the website when we get it's off. Seriously,
0: yeah. the yeah. most satisfying we're, we're thing in the world.
2: Yeah. I that'll be the only uh, gun in my house. <laughs> yeah. It, but it would be the most satisfying. It as really foster, is. As foster parents, we can't have guns in the house. Well, we we don't have any guns in the house. As foster parents, there's some really stringent rules, which makes sense, right? But yeah. I, I think I could have that one. I think that
0: would
1: be <laughs> Yeah, you one could justify
0: that. The one right the area. ammo's a lot cheaper too. <laughs> yeah, lot
1: so. Usually <laughs> I've got a box of salt anyway. So
0: yeah, see. Yep. There you go. I'll uh, go ahead and get that sponsorship deal written up for them.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So we talked a lot about a lot of heavy stuff today, but we also got some good life advice for for housewives. So Lorraine, if someone wants to connect with you or find you online, find more out about your practice or the Alliance, where can they find you?
2: The easiest way is probably through our website, which is www.nf M-H-A, so National Farmers Mental Health Alliance acronym.ca. It's probably the easiest way to get in touch with us. And we we have therapists who are able we have some actually that are coming on board in the US as well, which we're really excited about. So if that's you, then then reach out to us for sure. We're also, you know, looking for more lived egg experience therapists. So if they're if you're a social worker out there, or if you're a therapist in the States if you're an LPC, and you're also a farmer and you're interested in kind of working with us, then we invite you to reach out because we can't do it alone. And we want to be able to provide support wherever farmers are, which is all across our countries, our great nations. And so we, we want to partner with more.
1: more. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. It was a great conversation.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Lauren. It was, it was a good one. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us today on Barnyard Language. If you enjoy the show, we encourage you to support us by becoming a patron. Go to www.patreon.com/barnyardlanguage to make a small monthly donation to help cover the costs of making the show.
1: Please rate and review the podcast and follow the show so you never miss an episode.
0: You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Barnyard Language, and on Twitter, we are Barnyard Pod. If you'd like to connect with other farming families, you can join our private Barnyard Language Facebook group.
1: We're always in search of future guests for the podcast. If you or someone you know would like to chat with us, get in touch. We are a proud member of the Positively Farming Media Podcast Network.